Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another banging episode of Basin Breakdown. Now, yeah, we're still recording this from the road. It is myself, Tavis, from an undisclosed closet in Bakersfield, and Kevin. How you guys doing? Good to be back. Are you recording from a closet as well? It looked like you were in the office. But... I'm actually in the office today, yeah. <laughs> hey, lucky you. For those of you who don't know, this is a podcast that will look at all the biggest news and events. It is November now, but we will be revisiting all of that stuff through October. So sit back, relax, and we'll get you learned up on the biggest news. Starting off with Liberty Oilfield, and Liberty Oilfield Services Incorporated actually paid $90 million in cash and stock for PropX, who was a Denver-based provider of last-mile prop and delivery systems. According to CEO Chris Wright, the company was founded in 2016 and offers innovative, environmentally-friendly technology with optimized dry and wet sand containers and well-site prop and handling equipment that drive logistics, efficiency, and reduce noise and emissions, positioning Liberty as an integrated provider of completion services. And I gotta say, I don't think it stresses it that much, but Liberty is becoming the number one, I would say, a service frack provider out in the DJ basin. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see Halliburton's moved most of their operations down into Texas. You know, Slumberjay is not as active in the DJ. So really, Liberty has taken this opportunity to completely take over. And I think this acquisition of PropX is just another way for them to reduce cost and, and get more of that work. So I think that's great on Liberty. Up next, we've got Excel Energy, who stated that its natural gas business will achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Excel Energy is committing to being a net zero energy company by 2050, in addition to its goal of providing 100% carbon-free electricity to consumers by 2050 as well. This will be accomplished while maintaining service reliability and keeping customer prices affordable. Excel Energy is the only major U.S. energy company to establish a comprehensive vision for lowering greenhouse gas emissions across three important sectors of the economy, that is, electricity, natural gas use in buildings, and transportation. I just think it's kind of cool since it's like the first company and it's here just in our backyard that I think that now that Excel Energy has set that baseline, everyone's just going to start building on top of it and this is just going to become more and more common as the years progress. Next, Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado presented the Competitive Onshore Mineral Policy Through Eliminating Taxpayer-Enabled Speculation, or COMPETES Act today, great acronym, which prohibits oil and gas firms from leasing taxpayer-owned public lands for pennies on the dollar. This non-competitive approach is used on 40% of the acres leased for drilling. Under current law, the Bureau of Land Management is required to provide federal lands that do not attract buyers in oil and gas leasing auctions for only $1.50 per acre through a non-competitive leasing method, which is significantly less than the customary fee at auctions. And that makes sense. A lot of this land is going for, honestly, rates cheaper than dirt actually costs. And I think people should be fairly compensated for the land, whether it's federal land and that goes back to the people or, you know, maybe private. Absolutely. And part of the reason that I love this act so much is, like you said, that acronym. I bet they had some creativity <laughs> in there in figuring out this name. And finally, we've got Bonanza Creek rebranding itself as Civitas Resources, closing back-to-back -back acquisitions. So Civitas Resources became the largest pure play energy producer in Colorado's DJ Basin when the deal closed with more than half a million net acres and a $4.5 billion enterprise value. 
Following the recent completion of the Bonanza Creek merger with extraction oil and gas and subsequent acquisition of Crestone Peak Resources, the company is rebranded as Civitas Resources, which would exemplify the new ENP business model for U.S. producers by combining fellow DJ Basin firms, first with an all-stock merger agreement with extraction and then with Crestone Peak. I love this story. It's the beginning of something new, and I just hope they end up doing it right. But that's all we've got for Colorado, so we're going to move it over to Wyoming, to the Powder River Basin, where ExxonMobil Corporation has restarted development on a planned 1 million ton per year carbon capture project in Wyoming, stating that operations might begin as early as 2025, two years later than initially intended. The cost of the Labarge extension is estimated to be around $400 million. Exxon will be soliciting bids for engineering, procurement, and construction in the next months with a final investment decision expected in 2022. Exxon's decision comes as the company faces investor pressure to rethink its climate approach. Exxon is focused on shorter-term aims, while competitors BP and Shell have set long-term targets to reach net-zero carbon emissions and invest in renewable energy. I think it's interesting that after this two-year delay, it's becoming this hot topic issue that, you know, this is something that Exxon really needs to pursue. But I also think it's interesting because of the amount of coal production that happens up in Wyoming. So it's a, it's a very, you know, greenhouse gas carbon intensive state. So I think maybe that's the reason they're choosing to implement it here. But I also think it's interesting that they're focused on, on more of the short term goals, whereas the other majors, kind of like you said, BP and Shell, they set those long-term down-the-road targets to, to try and hit the zero carbon emissions. But I think maybe Exxon's goal is, all right, let's you know get rid of this first hurdle and then down the road figure out how we can be bigger and better than our competitors. I agree. I mean, talk is cheap. So if you can actually get some results pretty early in the short term, then I think investors would be more likely to give you some money to work with. And up next, we're going to talk about the Powder River Basin's positive production outlook looking forward. In 2019, this shale produced over 213 million barrels of oil and 992 million cubic feet of natural gas per day. However, the COVID outbreak in 2020 resulted in a 30% decline in crude oil production and a 28% drop in natural gas production from March until May of 2020. However, the output of crude oil and natural gas has recovered slightly in June 2020, reaching 182 million barrels per day and 957 million cubic feet per day, respectively, but has since been dropping at a monthly rate of about 1%. When compared to other key plays, the Powder River Basin was less affected by the downturn. By the end of 2022, both commodities are predicted to exceed their 2020 levels, and then by 2025, they're actually expected to increase at a higher rate than they did back in 2019. And this is something we at Rare Petro have been talking about for a while. Yeah, lots of production in 2019, 2020 kind of curbed that, and even now we're seeing demand's coming back pretty quick. What I think is interesting is that they've actually been dropping on a monthly rate of 1%, but pretty soon, hopefully, those really turn around. And, and like we said, by the end of 2022, they're expected to exceed those 2020 levels, which, again, weren't great. But then by 2025, they're really going to take off and surpass those 2019 rates. So it's exciting to see that that really the Powder River is really trying to turn things around and, and focus on that energy-first mentality. And you kind of touched on it, but this region of Wyoming is known for 
coal, and according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the amount of coal pumped into U.S. power plants this year would increase by about 20% to 521 million short tons, making coal the second largest source of electricity in the United States, right behind natural gas. Coal's resurgence is due in part to changes in the U.S. natural gas production, which plummeted last year as shale producers were forced idle rigs and cut projected drilling spending due to falling oil prices. Natural gas prices have risen as a result of the scarcity of gas, which has coincided with recovery in the global economy and energy demand. This has lured power generators to burn more cheap coal. Coal sold from Wyoming's prolific Powder River Basin was selling for 75 cents per thousand British thermal units last week, according to the EIA, and I'd like to stress, this is not something that is just native to Wyoming. We're seeing many economies around the world, China included, burning lots more coal as energy gets to be more and more expensive, and they're looking for that next cheapest commodity. Well, the interesting thing about this story, and Tavis, you hit the nail on the head with that, is it's happening worldwide. But what I think is fascinating about this is the fact that coal is our next cheapest option. If we're really trying to cut our environmental footprint, limit greenhouse gas emissions, shouldn't we be trying to spike the price of coal as to ensure that individuals don't go that route and they try and lower their carbon footprint? I just think that there should be um, some kind of incentive to either increase the amount of natural gas production or heck even a transition over to more green sources of energy as opposed to coal. I just think this is a huge step back in the global sense of trying to reach these net emission, net zero carbon goals. And I just, it's its truly an unfortunate reality that we see unfolding right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think the people in Wyoming would love to see those commodity prices go up too, but we've got to take it on over to Texas, to one of our favorites, the Permian Basin, where Rattler Midstream LP, a subsidiary of Diamondback Energy Incorporated and private affiliate of an investment fund, completed a joint venture with West Texas Gas Incorporated and its affiliates to acquire a majority interest in a Midland Basin gas gathering and processing company. A lot of people involved in this. Rattler paid about $104 million in cash to purchase a minority stake in the joint venture. The assets of the joint venture largely consist of an interconnected gas gathering infrastructure and six major gas processing plants serving the Midland Basin, with a total processing capacity of 925 million cubic feet per day, with plans for additional gas collection and processing expansions. So I wonder, Tavis, think about maybe not necessarily this time last year, but wintertime last year when there was that big Texas freeze where people were without power for days, weeks on end. I wonder if this is kind of a step in that direction to try and ensure that that really doesn't happen again, trying to get all of these different companies under one roof, under one umbrella, so that they can really pivot in times of crisis. I think that is a significant part of it, and I wouldn't be surprised if the other part was just, well, they see a tight natural gas supply problem right now, so why not capitalize, try and get your foot in the door, make some money when things do get to be especially tight. Because if they can process this gas that people are going to pay, I don't know, maybe $8 for, they'll be making a decent amount of money. And talking about money, Pioneer Natural Resources lost quite a bit of that in this past third quarter. According to a securities filing, Pioneer Natural Resources lost $501 million in oil and gas hedging in the third quarter as energy prices surged to multi-year highs. After recovering from last year's falls, U.S. crude futures are trading at $83 per barrel and natural gas contracts are selling near $6 per million British thermal units. Because of the price increase in the second half, 
Producers who hedged at lower prices are experiencing huge losses this quarter. Pioneer's hedging losses for the nine months that ended on September 30th totaled $2 billion, according to that filing. <laughs> and this was just the case for too many people. I mean, hindsight will always be 2020. If people knew that prices were going to be where they were today, I'd know they would have hedged differently. But think back to then. Everyone was, every news agency was saying, this is the death of oil and gas and the finish line for the energy transition. But that just wasn't the case. Well, and you also have to think, when prices went negative and prices were hovering in the $40 per range, if people could hedge their production at, say, 50 heck, even $60 a barrel, that would have been an absolute steal. But now that we're sitting in the mid-80s, they're absolutely <laughs> just getting crushed by these new prices. Right? It was the safe bet, but there are people out there playing that risk. Speaking of risk, it seems like a lot of it is disappearing from the Eagle Ferd because in these past couple months, we're seeing more and more news. And most of the news is acquisitions, a little bit of divestment and investment from a bunch of other parties, so we'll just run through that real quick. Starting off with Chenier securing Corpus Christi expansion support from Glencore. On a free onboard basis, the trader will take about 0.8 million tons of LNG from Chenier marketing per year. Glencore's contract will be in April 2023 and will last for 13 years, so good on them for securing that. Next, U.S. oil producer Sundance Energy explores an asset sale. Sundance Energy is offering around 38,800 acres in the Eagleford Shale area in South Texas. Sundance's Eagleford assets could generate about 12,000 barrels of oil and gas per day, according to the paper. And according to one source familiar with the situation, the assets might bring in between 450 and 650 million, so I'm sure those will be snatched up. And then lastly, Silverbow resources to acquire oil and gas assets in the Eagleford. In the oil window of Lavaca, DeWitt, McMullen, and LaSalle counties, the purchase contains about 17,000 total net acres. In May, 111 PDP wells produce around 2,500 barrels of oil equivalent per day from the assets. So it's good to see people are getting in, getting out, properties changing hands, and I think we're going to see a bit more activity in the Eagleford. I agree, and it's, it's nice to finally see some activity in an area that was really undervalued and, and underappreciated for so long. Granted, it was when those prices were low and, and individuals and, and companies were trying to focus on those core assets. So it's nice to see that this renewed interest in the Eagleford, because it's always been one of our favorites to report on. Um, but enough of that. Let's head on over to the Scoop Stack, where Continental propels Oklahoma natural gas output above its quarterly forecast. Continental Resources reported better-than-expected natural gas production in the third quarter of 2021 from its home base in Oklahoma. Despite the increased price environment, the Oklahoma City-based independent intends to keep its focus on natural gas projects in the Sooner State. Quote, We have elected to continue focusing on natural gas developments in Oklahoma based on favorable market conditions, end quote, CEO Bill Berry said. This resulted in an approximately 80 million cubic feet per day increase in natural gas production, but unfortunately, a 4 million barrel per day reduction in oil in the third quarter of 2021 production results in Oklahoma versus prior projections. And now, while it might seem impressive that that 80 million cubic feet per day increase, but unfortunately, that was associated with that 40 million barrel per day reduction in, in crude production. That being said, gas prices are absolutely surging right now, so... Maybe Continental really did make the right market choice. 
Oh, I think this is definitely a play for the next year, or in the short term, just the winter. Next, a Berkshire pipeline caused a large methane spew in the US, and this is a hot topic right now, especially with the new methane rules looking to go into effect soon. Last week in Oklahoma, a pipeline operator controlled by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Energy released a massive plume of greenhouse gas with the same heat trapping ability as thousands of cars' annual emissions. Northern Natural Gas estimates that it spilled 21.8 million cubic feet of natural gas over the course of three hours while repairing a breach in its nationwide pipeline. The discharge was one of the worst in the country this year, with the same short-term climate warming impact as more than 7,700 U.S. vehicles' annual emissions. And say what you want about whether or not you agree with these uh, new guidelines and what this story is saying, but we have to do better as an industry if we really want the public, the court of the public opinion to favor oil and gas. Absolutely. And, and granted, mistakes happen, accidents happen, and, and that's oh, always yeah. going to be the case. But this is something where really just the timing of that is just not ideal. You know, 7,700 U.S. vehicles, annual emissions. And that happened over the course of just three days. That's that's a big blow for the industry. So hopefully Berkshire can, can really resolve this and, and maybe institute some more carbon emission reductions to try and get themselves in in the better eye of the public. But that's all we've got for Oklahoma. Next, we're going to move it to California, where, oh boy, we've got plenty of interesting news as usual. Governor Newsom and his oil and gas supervisor, Yudak Joe Natuk, announced a draft rule to safeguard communities from the health dangers associated with oil drilling. California is the only oil-producing state in the U.S. where there's no regulation for a minimum distance between oil wells. Homes, schools, child care centers, really, they, they don't have a setback. Newsom's declaration that California will propose a 3,200-foot setback between new wells and homes, as well as a strict pollution regulations on existing wells, is especially critical for Californians who suffer disproportionately from fossil fuel production. And this is uh, a topic that's also been a hot topic in California for a while. Lots of these wells and operations exist near low-income communities, so the state does feel they're being disproportionately targeted but then again we have to remember who was there first and what the government was actually doing for to protect its people and with the lack of setbacks there's not much you really can do well what i think is also interesting about this story and and you did touch on this is that in california there has never been a setback distance requirement and now they're going for 3200 feet that's over half a mile tavis i mean i just think that Granted, this is California where things sway to the extremes, but I think it's a little bit of an extreme setback measure where how about we start with, you know, 500 feet, maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000. I mean, this is absolutely significant, significantly higher than we see in, in most other states, if not all. It'll be interesting to see how this progresses in the legislature. Up next, we're going to talk about California's massive offshore oil spill. Officials are investigating if a ship anchor damaged a pipeline off the coast of California this past month, resulting in a large flow of crude oil that has sparked calls to phase out the Golden State's already dwindling offshore oil industry. However, the entire amount of the spill remains unknown as its difficult cleanup work continues. The oil leak was detected in federal seas about five miles off the coast of central California, eventually watching up on the beach in Huntington Beach in Orange County Town about 40 miles south of Los Angeles. Damage from a ship anchor is one of the distinct possibilities, according to Martin Wilshire, CEO of pipeline operator Amplify Energy Corporation. 
Uh, this was the story of the month. This probably doesn't come off as news to anyone else, but it was really fun to see it develop as it happened, the absolute outcry and outrage, I might even say. And then things got pretty quiet once it turned to the hypothesis that it was a ship that most likely damaged the line, dragged it. So fortunately, it seems most everything is cleaned up by about now. There's a few tarballs here and there, but other than that, it's back to business for that community. I do think it's fairly interesting how there is this big, massive outcry and how the oil and gas industry was, you know, poisoning these beaches, killing fish, you know, not allowing people to enjoy their outdoor activities. And then when it came out that it was actually a ship's anchor that, that caused this damage, the story just about disappeared entirely from the news because they needed to support the shipping industry. So again, it's it's kind of that two-faced mentality that we see all too often towards the oil and gas industry. But hey, I'm just glad that you know no one was seriously harmed during this and that it's cleaned up. And you may have heard about high gas prices, but have you heard of prices close to $8 a gallon? I sure hope not, but according to AAA data, the average price of a gallon of normal unleaded gasoline in California is about $4.54, and oh boy is that true, I drive by those pumps pretty frequently, which this is about $1.16 higher than the national average. However, one brave station among the Big Sur coast was charging $7.59 for normal grade gasoline and nearly $8.50 for premium. 99.9% .9 of motorists will not buy gasoline over $5, said Severin Borenstein, an energy expert at UC Berkeley. In Southern California, prices are at their highest level in a decade. Motorists in Los Angeles and Orange Counties are spending $19 more to fill up a normal 14-gallon tank than they were only a year ago. That is just absolutely brutal. I mean, $1.16 per gallon higher than the national average. That's just... That's astounding to me. At four fifty four, man, I sure am happy that those prices aren't quite like that here in Colorado. And so, Tavis, I feel for you. Hey, it's only a matter of time. But enough talk on California. Let's head over to the East Coast and talk about the Marcellus, where New York denied permits for a proposed natural gas-fired power plant. Environmental regulators in New York refused permits to build two natural gas-fired power plants on October 27th, as the state shifted its focus to renewable energy and energy efficiency in order to reach its greenhouse gas reduction objectives. NRG Energy's proposed Astoria Gas Turbine Project in Queens and Dan's Kamer Energy's proposed Dan's Kamer Repowering Project near Newborough in the Hudson River were both refused air emission licenses by the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. The DEC stated, our review determined the proposed projects do not demonstrate compliance with the requirements of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And while these do make sense, again, we're, we're seeing all of these states, counties, I mean, globally, we're seeing this big shift back towards coal. And here they're proposing a project for this natural gas, a lot cleaner of an energy source. But that being said, they still have to go through the entire construction process. So it's not like these would have helped in the past few months where we've seen this big uptick in coal consumption. But who knows? Um, I do like that they are focusing on the renewable energy and energy efficiency aspects. But it is unfortunate that you know natural gas, this really clean option, was shut down. I agree. I, I do like that they're moving towards a, a more renewable future but then again this is a this is a big area we're talking about new york these heavily populated suburbs 
if someone needs energy, it's not like they can just go and cut down a tree in the case of an emergency. So I hope things don't get to be so bad that we're looking at options of burning trash or doing whatever. I think energy bills will likely just get high as we transition through this. It's just a question of how high. And then next, Chief Oil and Gas explores a sale for more than $3 billion. According to persons familiar with the situation, Chief Oil and Gas LLC, the Appalachian Exploration and Production Business, created and controlled by Texas Wildcatter Trevor Reese Jones, is considering a deal that might value it at more than $3 billion, including debt. Chief Oil and Gas, founded by Reese Jones in 94, is currently one of the largest privately held natural gas producers in the United States. His decision to sell now comes as energy prices have risen to multi-year highs, bolstering the industry's corporate valuations. According to the sources, Chief Oil and Gas has recruited an investment bank to start the sale process for the company who asked to remain anonymous because the topic is private. And that makes me wonder, gas prices are at an all-time high, why wouldn't he capitalize? Is he just old, trying to get out of the business? sick of dealing with energy policy who knows it's a good point and maybe he got scared off that these new proposed gas projects were shut down that maybe he saw uh, the end of the road a lot quicker than the rest of us might be seeing it and decided you know it's it, it's time and finally the marcellus and utica shale according to eqt ceo toby rice might help alleviate europe's enormous energy shortage Rice expressed his desire to see new LNG export facilities built along the East Coast, possibly including one in the Marcellus Hook refinery just outside Philadelphia, which he described as a great potential for Pennsylvania. And now, while I think this is a great idea, the fact that New York shut down permits to build new you know, natural gas power plants for use in our own country, I don't think that they're going to sell for an LNG export terminal to take our energy that we produce here and ship it overseas. But who knows? Maybe that's just my opinion. No, I think you're absolutely correct. Yes, there is a market and money to be made, but it seems like the Northeast is just not interested. And then for our final basin, we've got the Bakken. First, Oasis is looking to acquire Williston Basin assets from Diamondback for about $745 million. Again, this isn't the first time we've heard from Diamondback this podcast, so good to see them wheeling and dealing, but they agreed to sell their Williston Basin assets to Houston-based Oasis for $745 million in cash. On a two-stream basis, the assets purchased include 27,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day of production in the first quarter of 2021 and 95,000 net acres. Diamondback purchased Williston Basin Assets as part of its December 2020 merger with QEP, which was completed back in March of 2021. This means Diamondback will be leaving the Williston after the deal with Oasis is completed, which is expected to be finished in July. I just think it's pretty interesting that Diamondback purchased all these Williston Basin Assets in December, well, granted the deal closed in March, and then just, you know, six, seven months later, they're turning around to sell it to Oasis, but... I mean, we've said this time and time again, it's time for operators to really focus on their core acres and, you know, maybe Diamondback realized they were in a little bit over their head in this area and wanted to offsell it. So it's, you know, it's a, a great opportunity for someone to really step up and become a major producer in this area. Right. They certainly wanted something from QEP and it sure wasn't those Williston Basin assets. So our next story is a little bit of an interesting one. So biosurfactant is proving to be a game changer for many Bakken operators. Credence Energy Services in Williston is refining a novel biosurfactant for the Bakken that is drawing out higher-end oil, which is piquing the interest of Williston Basin operators. 
According to business officials, the product is already being tested in at least 15 new locations by some of the play's biggest oil producers, in addition to three original tests proving the product for Bach and Wells. Based on Credence's work, the product has been nominated for a few different prizes, including a World Oil Award nominee for Best Completion Technology. The product is also being certified as carbon-free, and I think every single aspect about this story is not only interesting, but it's just flat-out cool. You know, you're getting a World Award nomination for the Best Completion Technology, and it's also carbon-free. I mean, this to me is just leaps and bounds into the right direction, so... Great job on Credence Energy, and we'll keep you updated on this real cool biosurfactant as more and more data comes out. Oh, for sure. I love seeing stuff like this, and it's even a little more special because I think Niels and I covered this back in the summer, and I was pretty doubtful at the time. But if we can get more products like this out, then I believe the American public will just be approving of oil and gas operations. But next, Hess boosts activity in the Bakken on commodity price strength, which no one can quite say they're too surprised. So Hess Corporation, a U.S. independent, has added a third rig in the Bakken shale and may contemplate a fourth next year if these commodity prices remain strong. After being slowed by COVID last year, the New York-based company is stepping up Bakken activity. In the third quarter, net Bakken production was 148,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, down from the 198,000 in the previous quarter. Hess drilled 18 Bakken wells in the third quarter, finished 22 more, and brought 19 online. The ultimate objective, according to the executives, is to restore the Bakken production to 200,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. And by golly, I hope they do it, but it's going to take some hard work. Yeah, it's an extra 52,000 barrels of oil each day. So, um, but who knows? I mean, if you've got drilling rigs out there, a well in and of itself in that area can bring on massive amounts of production. So, you know... We will keep you updated on Hess's activity, but it's cool to see that they're really buckling down in this area. And finally, we've got a Canadian firm that announced a $2.8 billion natural gas conversion plant in western North Dakota. Carillon Inc. of Alberta is developing the project, which will be the first of its sort in North Dakota. State officials announced a $3 million initial investment through the Department of Commerce this past month, with more state support possible down the road. Governor Doug Burgum praised the initiative as a step towards its lofty goal of making North Dakota carbon neutral by 2030, which he announced earlier this past year. GTL, or gas to liquids, is a refining process that converts natural gas into fuels like gasoline and diesel. But ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of this podcast. I know we presented a whole lot of news and might have even gone over your head. That's okay. It just means you got a little bit more to learn. And if you're looking to learn more, by golly, do we have the resources. Just head on over to www.rarepetro.com and you can find plenty of periodicals, other podcasts, videos, you name it. We got the works. And if you have any questions that aren't exactly answered, you can always email us directly at podcasts at rarepetro.com and we'll be able to answer your questions on some other future segment. But I think that's about everything I've got to talk about. Can you think of anything else, Kevin? Well, I just want to wish everyone a very safe and happy Thanksgiving. And I wish you that as well. And thank you for stopping by, giving us your time. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 